Welcome to the Doc Washburn Show, the show that talks about what you actually care about. We stream live at noon Eastern, 11 a.m. Central weekdays at docwashburnshow.com. Minutes after each live stream is completed, the Doc Washburn Show podcast is available for download at all your favorite podcast platforms. The Doc Washburn Show is on Twitter and Facebook, and you can email us at contact at docwashburnshow.com. Now, this is episode 66 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. It's Wednesday, January 13th, 2022. Coming up, did dismissals of safe outpatient drugs cause needless COVID deaths? We'll hear what a lot of dissenting doctors have to say about that. Yes, I was fired by one of the biggest radio companies in America, Cumulus Media, simply because I refused their vaccine mandate. Yes, it's obvious the last U.S. presidential election was stolen. No, my old employer wouldn't let me say that on the radio. And yes, there's all kinds of evidence out there that a lot of people are having serious negative reactions to the vaccines. So this is a really different kind of talk show. We're unmasked, uncensored, and unfiltered. If you'd like to support what we do, go to our website, docwashburnshow.com, and click on the button that says Become a Patron. All right, let's get our guest on the air and do an interview. Hello. Good morning, Clayton Fox. Hey, good morning. Hey, ordinarily, my producer would be calling you to set up the phone call and, <laughs> and get it ready, but uh, the Net2Phone app isn't working for him this morning. Uh, so you got Doc Washburn, and uh, and we're ready to rock and roll if you are, sir. Excellent. Good morning. Let's do it. Excellent. Fantastic. All right. Um, and for my listeners, we do have Clayton Fox. He has written a remarkable article over at Real Clear Investigations entitled, Did Dismissals of Safe Outpatient Drugs Cause Needless COVID Deaths? Dissenting doctors say yes. Mr. Fox, your article reminds us that for the first nine months of the COVID-19 pandemic, there were no officially approved outpatient treatments for combating the disease. From March 2020, when the virus first emerged in the United States until November 2020, when the FDA authorized emergency use of monoclonal antibodies, health authorities for all that nine-month period just advised infected people to do little more than quarantine themselves, drink plenty of fluids, and rest unless hospitalization was necessary. So, so basically the government and the healthcare establishment had no advice on how to actually treat this illness, and a lot of people died. But you have a chilling quote from a doctor who descended early from the, uh, from the, the party line, Dr. Brian Tyson, a primary care physician and former hospital in- intensivist in Imperial County, California, who championed outpatient treatment, said, if I'm wrong with the treatment I'm giving, people are still going to die. If I'm right, how many lives have we saved? How many can be saved? Why are we erring on the side of death instead of on the side of treatment? So it's just, Clayton Fox, this is a, a question that millions of Americans want an answer to. Do you have any idea what the answer to that is? Wow. Well, um, you know, I, I think it's a multi dimensional answer if there is one certainly there are people you know across the spectrum who have various answers i can say that these doctors that i spoke to both in california in texas in honduras in india you know all over all over the world yeah um you know the 
the sense I got from these people was that when this all started, they had confidence in the medical institutions which nurtured them, gave them their careers, and have guided them, right? So right, sure. From medical, medical school all the way up to the FDA. Yeah, that would stand um, to reason, yeah. And what I've noticed in speaking to them, you know, over many months is that these people are not um, inclined to be conspiratorial thinkers. They're not inclined to uh, ask, you know, questions they don't want the answers to. Right. But they're very sad. More than, I think they're angry, yes, but they're also very sad at the response over the last two years and how the practice of medicine in a lot of ways has been denigrated. And so... You know, after all this time uh, dealing with what they consider to be, you know, unjustifiable interference in the practice of medicine, they have started to turn a little bit from sad to angry um, because there is no good answer. I mean, there is no good answer. I'll I'll give you a, a few thoughts. Sure. You know, one, follow the money. Right. Sort of obvious to say, and Senator Ron Johnson has been pretty uh, forthright in his opinion that a lot of this has to do with money. And, you know, in the piece, if people are able to read it, we do sort of catalog a little bit the saga of Malnupiravir, which is the outpatient pill developed by Merck. And if you look at the saga of this pill, it's quite interesting um, in terms of, you know, potentially a profit motive. It's an antiviral pill. Um, it's been in development for many years. It started out as a drug to combat um, Venezuelan equine encephalitis virus, and then they repurposed it when they thought maybe it would be effective against the coronavirus. Long story short, it was in the pipeline at first. Now, what's interesting is Merck was the original creator of ivermectin, that little controversial um, antiparasitic pill that everyone's talking about. Merck developed ivermectin uh, when it was first authorized for use in humans in 1987, so it's been around for quite a while. Um, But, of course, by now, ivermectin is off patent, which means anyone can make it. It it, it doesn't provide Merck with a particularly great profit at this point, right? And it's not an expensive drug to begin with. It's a very inexpensive drug. So... Last year, when Merck, uh, when Ivermectin was getting a lot of attention early in 2021 and people were talking about it as a potential, you know, I won't say solution because we'll get into that. Uh, it, there is no one pill solution to COVID. Uh, but when people were excited about Ivermectin, Merck put out a press release denigrating Ivermectin, saying that there was no proof it was helpful in COVID and that it was potentially unsafe. Now, that's very odd for a lot of reasons. First of all, why is the pharmaceutical company getting involved in the practice of medicine, period? Yeah. Second of all, uh, the company, Merck, which originally created the drug, had commissioned a study in 2013 to test the safety of ivermectin in humans. Let's be clear. It's, you know, the drug is used in animals, but it's also used in humans. Right. Uh, to, test, to test the safety of the drug in humans up to... Ten times the normal human dose, right? Right. And the study, sponsored by Merck, found no adverse effects 
in humans at a 10 times normal dose. Wow. And that was only eight years prior. And I actually called one of the, the uh, authors of the study that showed that it was safe, and I asked him, you know, and he's been 40 years in pharmacology, uh, to your knowledge, has anything changed in the last eight years to suggest that this drug is now potentially toxic to humans? And he said no. I asked him if anyone else had called. He said no. Oh, good so, grief. So Merck is saying that their old drug, ivermectin, is unsafe and potentially does not work in COVID. Why are they saying this? It's very strange. Well, at the same time, they were developing molnupiravir, which is now on the market. Molnupiravir costs something like $141 per day of treatment. Ivermectin costs, on the dose, something like $19, $30, $45 per day. So, uh, you know, one-third of the cost or less, and depending on where you are, it could be much, much less. You know, in other countries, Ivermectin is, you know, a few dollars a pill maybe. So profit motive, right? That's one thing, and unfortunately... The FDA uh, and the NIH and, you know, our agencies have some financial conflicts of interest with the pharmaceutical companies. Sure. Um, and so Senator Johnson would say, you know, why didn't we have early treatment options with cheap, safe, easily available repurposed drugs? Because some people were helping their colleagues in pharma with an alley-oop, so to speak, uh, and waiting for these more expensive new therapeutics to come out. So that's one possibility. Um, You know, another thing that I think hasn't really been talked about because people sort of just, you know, and and it's a life or death situation, so understandably emotions are extremely high. You know, if I'm not careful, I get pretty angry about it, but um, we're sort of lumping people into two camps, either the people who are, you know, willing to help and the people who aren't. And I think there's a lot of gray area in between. What people are forgetting is, you know, your average doctor, we live in a litigious society, very litigious society. Sure. Your average, your average doctor is very afraid of getting sued for malpractice, right? Sure, um, absolutely, yeah. Because it happens all the time. And a lot of doctors work for, for lack of a better word, corporate medical institutions, which have extraordinarily strict protocols, and and they themselves are also very afraid of getting sued, right? Right. So when you when you tell the average doctor, hey man, there's this great study out of France, you know, showing, for example, that hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin have an incredible signal of benefit in treating outpatients with COVID, the average doctor doesn't go, okay, great, I'm gonna give all my patients hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin, right? He's he's thinking. Well, what does the FDA think? What does the NIH think? Sure, I got to protect myself. I got to protect myself. Yeah, there's got to be, um, you know, a shield of liability, so to speak, right? Oh yeah. Um, and coupled with that, there's also this concept in medicine. In, it's in the Hippocratic Oath: "Primum non nocere," which means first, do no harm. Right. right? Now, you sort of have two camps of doctors interpreting that dictum. The first camp says, I don't know if hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin help. So if I was to give it to a bunch of patients and someone had a bad, a worse outcome because I gave that to them, or they had a a, a severe reaction to the drugs, then 
that's on my conscience, right? Sure. And the other group of doctors, the much, much smaller group of doctors, what I want to call sort of your warrior doctors, like Dr. Tyson, they say, well, I can't tell you with conclusive, undeniable certainty from a massive, big pharma-funded, randomized control trial that it works. And by the way, there still hasn't been a big, well-funded, high-powered, you know, randomized control trial looking at a lot of these drugs in combination, yeah. which is what all these doctors recommend. Right. There's plenty of trials out there looking at, well, we tested hydroxychloroquine and it didn't work. But there aren't, there aren't a lot of trials where they say, we tested hydroxychloroquine with an appropriate dose of azithromycin or doxycycline, which is another antibiotic, with zinc at an appropriate dose and see if that works versus placebo, right? That's not being done. But anyhow, you know, there's a lot of trials that just, you know, they test one therapy and it, it doesn't work, and then the media, who are, I don't know, this is also very strange, um, insistently almost cheering for early treatment to fail. Yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe you've noticed. Oh, yeah, big time. Uh, they, they put out a lot of various equivocating sort of negative articles about, you know, any of these repurposed drugs and then any of the doctors who are advocating for them are, you know, they're quacks. doesn't matter if they're 40-year veterans with a history like Dr. George Fareed, who's actually quoted in the piece as well, uh, Dr. Tyson's partner, George Fareed, worked at NIH. He was a virology researcher when he was a young man. Then he went into private practice, but, you know, to call the guy a quack, it's, it, you know, it's beyond. I don't really know how to describe it. It's, it's extremely insulting. And um, anyway, my point was, I'm sorry I got a little off track. No, but, it's okay. You know, there's two types of doctors. There's the doctors who say, I can't give these treatments because I don't want to do any additional harm. And then there's the very small group of doctors who say, I know these drugs. They're FDA approved. Now, they're FDA approved for other indications, but they are FDA approved drugs. Right. And they're safe drugs. They've been used in millions, probably billions of patients at this point when you look at hydroxychloroquine. I mean, it is the ubiquitous treatment for malaria, lupus, rheumatoid arthritis. Um, Ivermectin has been used in hundreds of millions, probably close to a billion patients. Uh, globally. So they're saying, I know the drugs, generally speaking, have a great safety profile. If I do nothing, when I when there's good evidence to suggest these things show signal benefit, then they see that as doing harm. Absolutely. So it's, it's kind of, there's this nuanced question in the medical community, I think, about what is harm. And I think a lot of doctors, it's not that they're murderous. It's not that they want their patients to suffer with COVID. Is that they're afraid of getting sued, and they also are very cautious people. These are not, generally speaking, warriors, okay? Yeah. I, wish, I wish maybe more of them were, but that's not the personality type. So I think there's a psychological element as well. Yeah, I have no doubt about that. Um, but every once in a while, uh, the word gets out that, the to use the old story, the emperor is wearing no clothes. Every once in a while... It just becomes so obvious. I mean, in, in your article, uh, you link to a tweet 
from the FDA from August of last year, which says, you are not a horse, you are not a cow, seriously, y'all, stop it. In other words, they don't want people taking ivermectin. And, you know, I go back to December of 2020. Um, I was about to fill in for a nationally syndicated talk show host named Mark Levin, and I noticed there was a doctor named uh, Pierre Corey out of Wisconsin who testified at a subcommittee that uh, Senator Ron Johnson was in charge of. And it's the first time I ever heard about ivermectin, and he was just saying, look, this stuff works. We've been using this for months, and it works, and people get better, and I'm just tired of, of seeing people, uh, needless deaths of, of people who who don't need to suffer, don't need to die if you just give them the ivermectin. And, you know, the government and the healthcare establishment came down on that like a ton of bricks, and they continue to about the same time that the FDA did this tweet that's embedded in your article. There was a concerted effort. Um, I was doing local talk radio in Little Rock, Arkansas. There was a concerted effort by UAMS, the University of Arkansas Medical System. They planted stories with all the local TV stations, and three out of four just ran with it that ivermectin, the developers of whom a few years earlier had won a Nobel Prize for its use among human beings, that ivermectin is horse paste, and people are calling poison control centers because they'd OD'd with this horse paste, and you don't want to take horse paste. And I recall seeing the, the evening news anchors at Fox 16 just kind of chuckling that people would be stupid enough to take horse paste. And I'm thinking, well, you're stupid enough not to be journalists and not to check on what you're being handed on a silver platter. But they didn't because they're not journalists. And it's, 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 well, it's very frustrating. Absolutely. And as, as to the question of journalists, um, you know, there's a section of my piece that we took out. We just didn't have enough space, but, um, you know, uh, there's a lot of quote unquote journalists uh, out there, um, who for whatever reason, uh, in this pandemic have really not done just bare bone reporting, which would be if someone makes a claim and you're going to mock them, yeah. you should probably check on the claim. Right. Be, you know, if there's any truth to it, for example, and then, We'll, I just want to quickly say this, and we'll get back on track. Sure. There was a reporter I saw um, on Twitter, right? Because everyone, you know, all the journalists are on Twitter, which is disgusting in and of itself, but whatever. So um, this very prominent journalist on Twitter, he, he takes a screenshot from what he calls the, uh, I think he called it the, you know, Ivermectin Facebook group or the Horse Dewormer Facebook group, you know, trying to be sort of clever and, and mocking people who are just looking for a solution to saving their loved ones. Um, and someone had posted in the group, in the chat, um, something about, hey, does Betadine help with COVID-19? Betadine is a antiseptic. It's povidone iodine uh, mouthwash. Um, it can be used on cuts and scrapes, whatever, but they formulated also a mouthwash version. You can gargle. And, and, and Betadine also makes a nasal spray. Uh, I'm not doing an ad for Betadine, by the way. This is just an example of, of journalistic malpractice. Uh, Betadine also makes a nasal spray. The active ingredient is iota carrageenan, right? Yeah. Well, anyhow, this, this journalist, you know, so-called, is mocking these people saying, oh, look, now they think they found another solution uh, with this, you know, uh, antiseptic that's meant for cuts and scrapes, you know, kind of 
alluding to Trump with the drink bleach thing, and it's all one, it's all of a piece, you know, when, when you're sort of mocking people. And uh, the point is, you didn't go look to see, you know, what is the range of products that Betadine makes, and is there any reasonable, um, is there any reasonable supposition that they might actually help with COVID-19? Well, guess what? There have been now, I believe, um, I know for sure, one, if not multiple studies showing that the active ingredient, both in the mouth gargle and in the nasal spray, have antiviral activity against SARS-CoV-2. Okay. So to, say blank, to say blanket statement, oh, these people are morons, look at their asking about betadine, it's terrible journalism because the facts are it's a reasonable question. There's scientific evidence to promote the fact that using some nasal spray with iota carrageenan, using a mouth gargle, a throat gargle with povidoniodine actually can kill COVID and potentially, therefore, reduce your viral load, which could potentially reduce your symptoms. So it's just negligence. There's a lot of negligence. I don't know. Yeah, well, like you said, as Senator Ron Johnson says, follow the money, and there's a lot of money um, involved here. I I noticed that uh, your reporting said that when Merck came out with this odd statement about um, ivermectin potentially not being safe for human beings, Eight years after they did a big study uh, insisting that it is safe for human beings, they, uh, they didn't mention that they had a much more expensive uh, treatment uh, in the works. Somehow. No, and, and, and you see this across the board. I mean, so, you know, there's so much to get into. I don't know. I'm try- <laughs> I don't want to talk your ear off about it. No, that's it, okay. It, it, no, the topic is, is massive. So let's, let's look at something, for example that actually does cost a lot of money that the government has been behind from the beginning and which has been misused. And that drug is called remdesivir. Yeah. Remdesivir uh, is an antiviral drug. It was originally created, I believe to fight Ebola virus. Uh, For whatever reason, it was repurposed to fight COVID-19. I suppose they looked at the properties of the drug and thought, well, maybe it'll work for whatever reason. This antiviral uh, from the, almost the beginning of the pandemic was very enthusiastically cheered on by Tony Fauci and the institutions and, and put as part of the standard of care, meaning, you know, all patients should receive when they go into the hospital. Yeah. Now, there's, sev- there's several problems with this. And, and let's be clear, remdesivir is a very expensive drug. Sure. Okay. It's a, it's a new drug. It, it is repurposed, but it's expensive. And here are the problems with it. First of all, it doesn't work in hospital, right? Yeah. Because it's an antiviral. Now, the thing about antivirals, if you remember Tamiflu from the last pandemic. Right. uh, Tamiflu was a bust. Why? Because you have to take it within 24 to 48 hours to have any effectiveness, right? You have to take it at the very beginning of the viral illness to kill the virus before the virus does its damage, right? Yeah. Same story with COVID. If you take an antiviral drug and you give it to someone in a, who's already hospitalized, this means they've been sick probably for more than a week, more than two weeks even, yeah. the viral phase of the illness, and this is important for your listeners to understand because this hasn't been communicated. COVID has multiple phases, right? Right. It starts with a viral illness where the virus is spreading in the bloodstream, right? And that lasts for days to maybe a week. 
And that's where you get the flu-like symptoms, you know, oh, I have a terrible headache, I have a sore throat, whatever. What really kills you with COVID is not the viral phase of the illness. It's the inflammatory phase. Right. Which comes later. Exactly. Now, they can sort of overlap, but, but generally there's three stages. There's viral, inflammatory, and finally, and this is really dangerous, the thrombotic phase where your body is riddled with blood clots. And in a lot of cases, that's what kills people in the hospital. So giving people an antiviral, once they've passed the viral stage, it's like throwing a police officer a Kevlar vest after he's shot. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Why would you, why would you do that? Okay. So, that, so problem number one is multiple studies have now shown that has no application in hospitals. Okay, you, you, you broke up a little bit there. Multiple studies have shown remdesivir has no application in hospitals? No effectiveness. No okay. effectiveness. Okay. Um, and the World Health Organization, WHO, literally released a statement uh, many months ago now saying, we, we, rec- we do not recommend, we recommend against remdesivir in hospitalized patients. Yeah. But for whatever reason, Tony Fauci and the NIH are still recommending it for hospitalized patients. Also, the drug has been shown to have extreme toxicity to your kidneys. So not only does it not help, it might be hurting you. Oh, boy. Now, here's what's interesting. This is an expensive drug that clearly Fauci and the NIH are in love with and have been since almost the beginning. It's not effective in hospital. In fact, it might be dangerous. But there are studies to show, and also just common sense, would suggest that it could be useful in outpatients, right? So people you catch early enough, in other words. Correct. If you, if you were to give someone remdesivir early in the course of illness, it actually has shown to be helpful, right? But, but the first time that the NIH, their treatment panel, they have a panel of doctors who put out recommendations for treatment, which, you know, the average doctor takes a cue from them. That's where they get their cues, right? Yeah. The NIH did not essentially recommend remdesivir for outpatient treatment until, drumroll, December 23rd, 2021. So what's the holdup? I don't, I don't know, but the point, my, my point is, while they're also suppressing inexpensive drugs for outpatient treatment, Right, and obfuscating them and denigrating them. They had a very expensive, fancy new toy, which actually could be helpful in outpatients, and they don't publicly make that conclusion until about a month ago, after however many hundreds of thousands have suffered. So now, granted, remdesivir is difficult to administer. You have to get an IV drip, etc. But for people in extremely high-risk categories, you know, you would think if they wanted to help, that would have been part of, you know, an, a, a panoply of options that were presented to medical centers around the country many, 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 many months before the end of 2021. I know that was sort of a long-winded uh, no. example. The point is, it seems like the institutions really aren't interested in outpatient care. They're not interested in inexpensive drugs. And they're not interested in expensive drugs. You know, um, some months back, 
the governor of Arkansas, back when I was still doing local talk radio in Little Rock, Arkansas, the governor of Arkansas uh, did a COVID-19 town hall meeting in a little town called Siloam Springs, Arkansas. It's still on YouTube last time I checked. And um, it was well attended, even a small town. But people were yelling at the governor, complaining that folks were not being given any sort of therapeutic when they showed up at the hospital, uh, symptomatic, and tested positive for COVID. And the governor seemed to think that was just a ridiculous assertion. He said, well, of, of course people are giving th- being given therapeutics for COVID at the hospital. And he turned to a hospital administrator standing there with him. He said, right? And the hospital administrator said, no, not presently, sir, in a very loud, booming voice. And the governor said, what was that? As if he didn't catch it. Um, no, I had the Surgeon General of the state of Arkansas on my local talk radio show some months back when I was still doing the local talk radio in Little Rock, Arkansas. And I said, look, um, a lot of people complaining, and not just at this one little COVID-19 town hall meeting the governor did, but I had anecdotal evidence. People would call my show on a regular basis saying that either they or a loved one presented at a major hospital in central Arkansas with COVID-19, and they wouldn't give them anything. And I said, why don't you, as a Surgeon General with a bully pulpit, uh, put out some kind of statement urging healthcare facilities and doctors in this state to actually treat people who have COVID with symptoms. And his response was remarkable. He said, well, you know, the hospitals are doing a great job. The doctors of the state are really sharp. And I don't, I don't think they're sitting around uh, waiting to hear from me on how to treat COVID. And I'm like, but you're the Surgeon General. You're, you're the... And so I said, look, you, you, you are the dir- director of the ER at the hospital in Russellville, Arkansas, right? He said, yeah. I said, so what's standard operating procedure if somebody shows up with symptoms, tests positive for COVID, what do you do? He said, well, we don't really have a standard operating procedure. Um, you know, it's a case-by-case basis. Of course, we leave it up to the doctors. And I'm like, what? But he was talking about how wonderful monoclonal antibodies are and and how safe and effective they are if you qualify. And this is the part about if you qualify. Uh, a nurse mentioned to me a few days later that to qualify for an- monoclonal antibodies, you have to be either over 65 or African-American or have some kind of underlying comorbidity. In other words, if you're a Caucasian, 50 years old, been in great health all your life, uh, but now you got the, the COVID, uh, they're not going to give it to you. Um, th- th- this whole thing is just, it's mind-numbingly ridiculous, and it's um, frustrating, and, and, and a lot of us are outraged about it because nothing adds up unless you're just willing to be cynical enough to say, well, it's all about the money and the pharmaceutical companies are making hundreds of billions. I, I don't know what other conclusion to come come to here. Well, yeah, I have a, I have a few, few things to say uh, on that. Let me first sort of quickly summarize, and, and maybe you've had someone on who's done this, I don't know, but, I, you know, I've spent months and months dug into all this stuff, so I, you know, hopefully it's helpful. Let's summarize quickly, you know, what outpatient treatments are currently, quote-unquote, approved or recommended by the government. Right. So now you've got them sort of saying, hey, remdesivir might be helpful outpatient, finally, after two years, 
But the, the thing is, it's extraordinarily expensive, and you need to get it in an IV. So not convenient, right? Yeah. You've got monoclonal antibodies, which, you know, were an extraordinary tool that were developed and underutilized. I mean, at one point I had sent a request to uh, Health and Human Services asking, you know, what is the utilization of monoclonal antibodies? And it was something like 43%. I mean, heavily underutilized. Yeah. Um, now, that was back in September. But now the monoclonal antibodies are essentially synthetic um, replications of the kind of antibodies you yourself will make after being vaccinated or, you know, encountering the wild virus. So it's a boot, it's basically an injection of antibodies, you know, that your body doesn't have to make. They've been extremely effective in reducing hospitalization and death if they're given at the right time. Okay. But again, getting them can be difficult for the reasons you listed. Also, you have to get an IV or a, a shot, um, subcutaneous shot, so it's not something easy to do at home. And the, pro- uh, the current problem with monoclonal antibodies is twofold. One, uh, because they are antibodies, the virus can mutate around them, which is what is happening now. So, for example, if you have Omicron, the only one that's still effective is the one from GlaxoSmithKline, so Trovimab, which we don't have a ton of. And two, the government has restricted their distribution. So I just just before the interview here, I pulled up uh, the current news on uh, monoclonal distribution. In the past week, uh, the total amount of doses distributed nationally was 226,996 for a country of 350 million. Uh, wow. What are we, 320? Um, so the, the federal government is, is sort of uh, throttling the supply of monoclonals. And then we've got the two new uh, antiviral pills, one from Pfizer, one from Merck. We already talked about the one from Merck. And the problems with those are, first of all, again, there aren't very doses currently available. Um, they are expensive, although I, I assume insurance is covering them, um, but they are extremely expensive, uh, relatively speaking. Uh, and they both have complications. The pill from Pfizer, which everyone was so excited about, and, and you know, the New York Times and whoever was, oh, oh this is the end of the pandemic, we're so thrilled, uh, you know, it seems to be effective, although there's only been one trial sponsored by Pfizer, so who really knows how it's going to work in the real world. But let's assume that it's very effective. Um, you know, a lot of the doctors I spoke with are, are going to include it in their protocols. So for anyone who thinks these doctors are, I don't know, um, worshippers of ivermectin and, you know, uh, right-wing, radical, whatever, doctors who, who just want to fulfill some narrative of what the president said last year, you know, 2020. No, these are just doctors who want to save lives. And so they're going to include the Pfizer pill in their protocols. But the Pfizer pill does interact with a lot of common drugs, you know. So if you take statins, for example, which my parents take statins, a lot of people take statins. Yeah. Uh, you, have to be, you have to be careful and talk to a pharmacist because uh, some of the ingredients, one of the ingredients in the Pfizer pill, one of the drugs in the pill interacts heavily with a lot of common drugs, so that makes it tricky to administer. And the drug from Merck, um, there's all sorts of safety issues with, which we don't need to get into now. You can go Google it, but, um, you know, for that to be widely distributed would be extremely complicated and maybe, and honestly, maybe uh, dangerous, possibly. So 
Um, so those are the outpatient options. After two years of us all living through hell, those are the outpatient options, right, according to the authorities. Um, they're not easy. They're not readily available. You know, they're not easy. So what are, what are the things that are, right? We've talked about hydroxychloroquine. We've talked about ivermectin. Um, but you know what's going to shock you and, and was in the peak, you know, there's never enough room, right? Right, sure. Um, here are four things, four, four drugs and or supplements that multiple studies have now shown to be extremely helpful for outpatients, right? Vitamin D. Yep. But vitamin D, I, I have out in front of me here. I've got, what, five different studies, uh, meta-analyses showing that if you have sufficient vitamin D circulating in your blood... When you get COVID, your chances of a bad outcome are extraordinarily reduced. There you go. It's a vitamin. You can get it anywhere. Sure. Now, most people living in the northern hemisphere above a certain latitude uh, are not going to get sufficient vitamin D from the sun, especially in the winter. So they would have to supplement. Uh, right, compact. and you can you can get a supplement at, at a health food store, or or at a grocery store, or a big box store like Costco or Sam's Club. Uh, vitamin D is not hard to find. No, and again, any of these things that I'm talking about, listen, you know, I'm not a doctor. Talk to your doctor, but but when you talk to them, and this is sort of to your previous point also about how angry people are, try to you know approach it with compassion, right? Like we should all try. to passionate to each other crisis, but go online, find, find these studies, print them out, and bring them to the office and say, hey, doc, would you mind looking at these? Because I think one of the problems in this whole crisis is that the average primary care doctor, and a couple of them said this to me, they don't have time to read all the current medical literature. Right. They don't have time. Right. They see too many patients. Right. You have to advocate for yourself. Bring them the literature. Let them interpret it, and if you know, and then have a discussion. Maybe they still won't be comfortable, but you know, that's the level we need to get to, and we're just not there. Um, so, you know, the other three things that are that I want to talk about that should not be controversial: aspirin. You've heard of it? Yes, I believe when I was a a child, they used to have commercials for the. Uh the aspirin that was made by the Bayer Company. Yes, sir. Yes, yes, you've heard of it. <laughs> so aspirin, now I'm looking at three different studies here, all showing, and at the largest of the studies was, well, let's see, no, it's a nice, 10,000 patients, um, shows that people who are taking some form of aspirin, basically, before they're hospitalized with COVID, have much better outcomes in hospital. Wow. Nobody's talking about aspirin. Now, of course, there are risks to aspirin. Again, consult your doctor. But to say that there's, again, oh, there's no treatment, there's nothing that helps, there's no signal of benefit, you know, at this point it's a lie. The other two things are budesonide. Maybe you've heard of it. Uh, A lot of children who have asthma use budesonide inhalers. Um, Budesonide is not a controversial drug. It's an asthma drug. Right. Right. India, the government of India, added inhaled budesonide to its outpatient protocol in May of last year. So we're going on, what, that's nine months ago? Yeah. 
eight, nine months ago, the government of India added budesonide to its outpatient protocols. The United Kingdom and, and Dr. Uh, and Senator Johnson mentioned this in, the, in a recent letter he wrote uh, demanding answers from the heads of our institutions. You know, the, the government of the U.K. has quietly allowed doctors to start prescribing budesonide for outpatients. But when you look at uh, our institutions, what our government recommends, it's nowhere to be found. Or they'll say, well, we're not sure, we don't know if we can recommend it, etc. And then the last sort of compound or drug that, that is, again, not controversial, has a lot of support from what I'll call um, academic doctors, right? The, the sort of institutional research doctors who have been very hesitant on hesitant on hydroxychloroquine. Wait a minute, you, you're breaking up there. They've been very hesitant. Is that what you're saying? Oh yeah, I'm sorry. It may not so good, but um, yeah, there's a drug called fluvoxamine. It's a very old school antidepressant. Okay. It's been shown in multiple studies now, including randomized controlled trials to show a signal of benefit, in other words, to, to have some benefit for outpatients with COVID-19. The drug is, is supported by what I'll call like the research community. A lot of uh, doctors and researchers who are very, how shall I say, um, careful, thoughtful, uh, follow the rules, etc. Those people now are even getting pissed off because even fluvoxamine is not getting a recommendation from our institution. Meanwhile, fluvoxamine is now in the official outpatient protocol of the, uh, I don't, what are they called, province? The province of Ontario, Canada. Yeah. A, you know, that's Toronto. Right. A, a massive Western polity is now saying, Fluvoxamine has shown enough evidence that we can recommend it for outpatients at high risk of severe illness from COVID-19. But in the United States, except that, you know, Johns Hopkins and a couple individual programs, our institutions, the NIH, the FDA, the CDC, crickets on fluvoxamine. So, I mean, we could go on all, we could go on all day. The point yeah. is, there is a massive base. Of, of evidence which has been accumulated by very hardworking, well-intentioned doctors and researchers around the world showing things from aspirin to fluvoxamine to ivermectin to vitamin D make a difference for most people if they're received early in the course of illness, you know, in the first yeah. week of illness. I mean, I mean, it may make a difference from your reporting in the overwhelming majority of people if they get it on time. You, you, you have... Uh Results in your article from India, Mexico, Honduras. Uh, again, we're speaking with journalist Clayton Fox, author of the groundbreaking article over at Real Clear Investigations entitled, Did Dismissals of Safe Outpatient Drugs Cause Needless COVID Deaths? Dissenting Doctors Say Yes. Um, now, you were curious to learn why only a handful of doctors publicly endorsed outpatient treatment during the first months of the pandemic, so you reached out to more than 20 of the top primary care physicians around the U.S. and asked that they would be willing to discuss early treatment of COVID. What happened when you did that? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so, of course, you know, it's easy to find, not easy, but it's, you know, if you read the studies that are being published, if you stay tuned to what's going on, it, it, it's relatively easy to find 
doctors who believe in early treatment to interview. And I quoted many of, you know, in the piece, I focus on three of them, but there's, you know, several more I spoke with around the world. Um, those people weren't hard to find. And of course, you already know what they think. They believe we should be treating early. Uh, but, you know, what is the job of a journalist? You're trying to figure out, well, but what's the bigger picture? What is everybody, what's the consensus? Is there a consensus? Uh, if not, why not? So I cold call, basically cold called and emailed at least 20 primary care physicians around the United States, whom I pulled from a sort of who's who of, of good doctors. And I got no responses. I mean, no I no responses. And I, and I didn't approach it in a confrontational way or anything. I simply said, I'm writing a piece on early treatment. I'd love to speak with you and get your thoughts on, you know, outpatient protocols for COVID-19. And, you know, crickets. Wow. So, now they could be, you know, who, who knows? They're busy. They don't know real clear investigations. They don't care. You know, whatever. The point is, it is indicative of a larger, you know, problem with our medical community vis-a-vis COVID and treatment. I mean, I also reached out, and we had we had to take this out of the piece, but I also reached out to the dean of the Harvard Medical School, the dean of the University of Washington Medical School, which is the number one primary care medical school ranked by U.S. News and World Report. I reached out to the dean of the University of California, San Francisco, and the CEO of the Mayo Clinic. All I got, and, and, and the question basically was, can we talk can we talk about what your very esteemed institutions are working on to develop some helpful guidance for other professionals about how to approach treatment of COVID-19? And, and essentially all I got was, we refer you to the NIH guidelines. We refer you to the CDC guidelines. Sure. We are following, we are following the government. We are following the guidelines. And what's re- really crazy is when I reached out to the Mayo Clinic, and everyone, you know, we know the Mayo Clinic, right? It's one of the great medical institutions of the world. For many years now, yes. So you would think the Mayo Clinic would have, I don't know, some interest in developing some innovative approach to saving lives or something. You would think, yes. When I reached out to their their press person, and again, remember, all I said was, I'd like to discuss outpatient treatment with the CEO. I'd like to know what he's doing, what the clinic's up to. I got a very odd response. And the response was essentially, if this is political, we don't want anything to do with it. Political. I hadn't said anything political. And, I mean, sure, real clear, I guess. Some people think of it as a slightly um, conservative-leaning publication, but it's it's one of the most even-handed platforms I'm aware of. I mean, when, um, I, when I go on real clear politics, real clear investigations or whatever, I see all kinds of links to articles written by conservatives, moderates, liberals, I mean, across the political spectrum. Um, I mean, so, so when they, when they say, when they say, okay, if this is something political, we don't have, we don't have anything to do with it. Did you, did you consider responding? Okay. What if it's not political? (laughs) Well, I don't, I don't remember how I responded, but it was quite clear to me that 
that basically the discussion of outpatient treatment has become so toxic. For whatever reason, it's become so, I don't know, anathema to the institutions and to what, let's just for lack of a better word, call sort of like the elite media consensus. Yeah. Um, that they jump, you know, that the, the, the press secretary of the Mayo Clinic jumps to this sort of assumption that I'm fishing for a political angle when all I'm really trying to do is gather evidence and information about what various institutions are doing in their approach to, you know, hopefully helping people and saving lives. I mean, it was an absurd response, but I think it, 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 it shows another element we haven't really discussed, which is, you know, unfortunately there is a political element to this conversation. Sure. Um, you know, when you look at the Congress people and senators who have consistently spoken up, written letters, gone on television to talk about why aren't we treating this disease, they're all Republicans. <laughs> I mean, they, that's just a fact. Um, the doctors I spoke with, I have no idea what their political affiliation is. Right. I have no idea. I don't think they're all conservatives. They're all liberals. Some of them, you know, they're in India, they're in Honduras, they're in Israel, they're in France. They don't care about American politics. Um, and they're all doing the same thing. And that's what I think, you know, I hope people will read the piece just to get this message that there are doctors around the world who have been fighting the fight for early treatment, some more successfully than others. So to reduce it to a political question, you know, if you support you know, for example, my guy in Honduras, Dr. Fernando Valerio, he is an ICU doctor primarily, right? He's one of four hospital intensivists in a city of 1.4 million. Yeah. They don't have the resources we have. So it was clear to him very early on, if I don't come up with some way of slowing the flow of patients into my hospital, it's going to be a bloodbath. Right, exactly. And you, you so, just can't have so that. He, he goes to the government and he says, here's what I think we should do. And luckily, you know, to some extent, the government of Honduras listened, and it seemed to really make a difference um, in terms of stemming the tide mortality. Well, you know, what's his protocol? Well, it's changed because, like all intelligent people, he's able to change his opinion based on new data. But his protocol has always included some combination of ivermectin with an antibiotic, with aspirin. Now he has fluvoxamine. There's an anti-inflammatory drug he uses called colchicine. These are all very old, very safe, FDA-approved drugs. Long story short, you know, he's in Honduras. His decision to use this drug protocol and combination for outpatients has nothing to do with President Trump. Right. Has nothing to do with President Biden. Has nothing to do with whether you're a good liberal or a good conservative. The fact that in America we can't even have a discussion about saving lives without tying it to the toxic political discourse. I mean, it really is It really is very sad. Yeah, it is. It is. I tell you what, Clayton Fox has done a fantastic job here at realclearinvestigations.com. The article is entitled, Did Dismissals of Safe Outpatient Drugs Cause Needless COVID Deaths? Dissenting Doctors Say Yes. Uh, Mr. Fox, you uh, deserve uh, a lot of praise and 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 probably awards for this article because um, you know th this has been kind of in in the back of people's minds, kind of like the elephant in the room, especially for folks who have had loved ones who have suffered from this malady who are wondering why they can't get to 
get treatment. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on the program. Uh, is there anything else that, that you think my listeners uh, should know before we wrap this up? Yeah, I really appreciate that, and I appreciate all the time you've given me sure. you know, to talk about this. You know, you and I could go out for coffee and talk for hours, but uh, let me just leave you with a couple quick thoughts, um, you know, that I want to emphasize. One is, you know, for the most part, none of the doctors I spoke to have any uh, fantasy about one magic pill solving this crisis. They, they, they prescribe many drugs in combination you know, this infectious disease. Okay, you're breaking um, up. They've descri- prescribed many drugs. What now? Oh, just that all the doctors spoke to pretty much would want everyone to understand that they're not saying there's any one magic solution. Right. They highly encourage the exploration of multi-drug cocktails and really treating the variety of, of sort of sequelae or symptoms associated with COVID-19. Um, so this idea that we need to have battle over whether Evermectin is a magic pill or not. I mean, that's not the point. Um, also, they'd want to emphasize that all these drugs are FDA-approved. They're just being used, quote-unquote, off-label, but that's very common. Uh, and, and finally, I guess, um, it's important to point out, you know, and the doctor I spoke with in India, Dr. Daryl DeMello, um, who has treated over 7,000 COVID patients, and according to him, now granted, I don't have the primary source documents, but According to Dr. DeMello, he's treated over 7,000 patients. He's only lost 17, that's 1-7. So extraordinary success. He, he did want to emphasize that at this point in the pandemic, um, you know, obviously the vaccines can be a great tool. A lot of people uh, are benefiting from them in terms of hospitalization and death. But when he gets a patient coming into him with acute COVID-19, you know, early stage, acute symptoms, positive tests, he says he does not care if you're vaccinated. He doesn't care if you're unvaccinated. He gives every patient the same treatment. He does not assume that the vaccine is going to save them. He wants to make sure that he is being as involved and giving them the best care possible, regardless of their vaccination status. Um, you know, and we don't really have time to get into that, but that would be a point that, you know, he probably want to emphasize as well. Everyone deserves, you know, the same care and thoughtfulness, but, uh, Anyhow, I really do appreciate um, the opportunity to come on, and I just hope that people, you know, after two years of this, uh, I hope people are getting curious that they'll read the article, and, you know, if they want to, they'll print out some of these primary sort of sources and take them directly to their doctor and have a conversation and try to do it with a sense of, I don't know, compassion and optimism, and, you know, hopefully we'll all get out of this soon. Absolutely. Clayton Fox, Real Clear Investigations. Uh, the article is entitled, Did Dismissals of Safe Outpatient Drugs Cause Needless COVID Deaths? Dissenting Doctors Say Yes. I shared it on my Facebook page and my Twitter page. Uh, Mr. Fox, you have uh, done a wonderful job here and uh, may, may have even saved a few lives yourself, and we appreciate you. God bless you. Have a great day. Thank you. Same to you. Thank you, sir. All right. There it is. There it is. Uh, this is the longest we have gone on the Doc Washburn Show without getting to our our first sponsor. So let's uh, let's tee that up right away. If you've tried to buy a car recently, you realize there's such a chip shortage, you may have a hard time finding what you're looking for. People I know have actually bought vehicles from hundreds of miles away from where they live. That's where Red River Your Way comes in. Red River Your Way is a big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom. 
the freedom to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV the way you want to. Now, you can buy online, and they'll drive it to you, no matter where you are, all across the continental United States. Red River Your Way wants to make your car buying experience as easy and transparent as possible. That's why they've added technology to their website that puts you in complete control of your payment options and allows you to complete the entire purchase process online. But don't worry, Red River experts are still here to help you every step of the way if you have any questions. Red River makes it so easy. As you browse their selection of vehicles, you'll see that each one has a button that says Explore Payment Options. Now, clicking that button guides you through a few easy questions that then create personalized payment options that you have full control over. All you have to do is adjust your preferences, and all the math happens automatically so you can determine what monthly payment works best for your budget. Red River Your Way makes car buying online easy. Your whole car buying process is completely transparent. So if you want to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV, order online from the nationwide car dealer that believes in freedom, including your freedom to buy the vehicle you want the way you want to. The dealer that will deliver your vehicle to your front door, no matter where you live, redriveryourway.com. You'll be glad you did. All right. I don't know. I don't know if you heard the little dust-up between Senator Roger Marshall, Republican of Kentucky, and Dr. Fauci a couple of days ago, but you need to because Marshall keeps on asking him, where's this financial disclosure form? Everybody else has to have one in government. And he keeps on saying it's publicly available, but he won't tell him how to find it because they haven't been able to find it. Boy, this Fauci is such a liar. Let's see. Okay, I've got that turned up to 100. And for some reason, I'm not hearing the the audio when I try to play this. Maybe if I get the net-to-phone thing out. I apologize for the inconvenience. Oh, I see, I see, I see. So I've got the computer turned up to 100. But on this particular YouTube video, when you start playing it, it doesn't unmute it. <laughs> I guess it's a safety feature. Here we go. Delta is has already been come and gone, and also after, of course, Omicron will be said and done as well. Dr. Fauci, 59% of Americans and 81% of Republicans do not have a favorable opinion of you. Frankly, honestly, you've lost your reputation the American people don't trust the words coming out of your mouth. Every day you appear on TV, you do more damage than good when it comes to educating the public on COVID. Suppose you were leading a team in an effort to try to get people to stop smoking cigarettes. But every time your spokesperson goes on television, over half the nation goes out and buys a pack of Marlboros. Wouldn't you stop that person from appearing on national television? Once again, Senator Marshall, I believe that's a real distortion of the reality. If you look at everything that I've said on TV, it is to validate, encourage, and get people to abide by the recommendations of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. 
Look at everything I've ever said. Yeah, Dr. Fauci, I get understand that, but, but perception is tested. reality, yeah. and you're hurting the team right huh? now. Yeah. You are hurting the team right now. Dr. Fauci, you previously told this committee under oath that NIH and NAIAD have never funded gain-of-function research with the HECO Health right. Alliance. However, a report from the Department of Dis- Defense Inspector General released yesterday states that EcoHealth Alliance proposed DARPA in 2018 seeking funding to conduct gain-of-function fun- research on bat-borne coronaviruses. This proposal, named Project Diffuse, D-E-F-U-S-E, was rejected by DARPA because the project didn't address the current research's potential to violate the gain-of-function moratorium. The proposal does not mention or assess potential risk of gain-of-function research. That's a direct quote from the DARPA rejection letter. The same proposal rejected by DARPA for gain-of-function potential was not rejected but by NIAID under your leadership. You funded Project Diffuse and its research that took place at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Why did you tell the committee that your agency has never funded gain-of-function research? Why did your agency award this grant despite it being rejected by DARPA due to its concerns about violating the moratorium that was in place? And finally, will you commit today to release all records fully unredacted by the end of this week so Congress and the American people can know the truth about NIH's role and the origins of COVID-19? Wow, 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 wow. Here's more. So, again, Senator, it really pains me to have to just point out to the American public how absolutely incorrect you are. What came out last night on Project Veritas was a grant that was submitted to DARPA. Then it distorted and said, we funded the grant. We have never seen that grant, and we have never funded that grant. So, once again, you are completely and unequivocally incorrect when you joined the DARPA proposal was a grant that we never saw and we did not fund. So you are incorrect. Our social media will have all the supporting documents and we'll yeah, be supporting but, these for the record well, as well. You are, you, you. You're backing down on this? Why don't we go and look at the very Veritas statement that we're talking about? Backing down? He said, we're going to put the proof up on our social media. All the supporting documents. When are you backing down? Well, who, is, who is this munchkin? Who is this elf? Who is this idiot? Not a grant that was submitted to DARPA. Are you saying this said, was not? Are you saying that this was viral gain of function research? I'm telling you that you're saying. Are you saying that this was grant? not viral gain of function research? By the definition that you were very well aware which your P3CO definition is you know, just a legalese to get away Senator that allows you to do the viral gain I'm of function about, studies. Senator. Senator Marshall, if you'll please allow the witness to respond. Senator, we know, and the misinformation, that the guide rails for what can be done or not were not established by me. They were established by a three-year process led by the Office of Science and Technology Policy of the White House. And decided by you in a secret meeting at the White House in December of 2019. Uh, Senator, that is incorrect. And this refers exactly to what I was talking about in response to Senator Rand Paul. You are incorrect 
completely. And every time I try to explain, you're incorrect. But the facts are on my side. So why, why will you not commit to sharing everything open, unredacted with this Congress? So, Senator so here's Marshall, an example, Dr. Fauci. Uh, this hearing is critically important to the American people. There are millions of people infected with the COVID virus. Right. It is impacting every part of our economy. Every family is asking for answers to critical questions. Both sides of the aisle have asked tough questions, but we are not going to allow this committee hearing to be another personal attack that undermines our ability to deal with this uh, uh, terrible virus that is impacting so many people. What an idiot. What an idiot. She doesn't want the truth coming out any more than Fauci wants the truth coming out. So I'm wondering, since Fauci says we didn't do such any such thing with DARPA, that's his way of getting out of admitting that he did something with DARPA. There's no DARPA. It's D-A-R-P-A. But here's where it gets real. Roger Marshall, Senator from Kentucky, uh, Senator from Kansas, and Dr. Fauci. Dr. Fauci, according to Forbes, you have an annual salary in 2020 was four hundred and thirty-four thousand dollars. You oversee over five billion dollars in federal research grants. As the highest-paid employee in the entire federal government, yes or no? Would you be willing to submit to Congress and the public? A financial disclosure that includes your past and current investments. After all, your colleague, Dr. Walensky, and every member of Congress submits a financial disclosure that includes their investments. Now he's talking without his microphone on for an extended period of time. He eventually turns it on. I don't understand why you're asking me that question. My financial disclosure is public knowledge and has been so for the last 37 years or so, 35 years. Well, the, been the big tech giants are doing an incredible job of keeping it from being public. Uh, we'll continue to, what, to look for it. Where would we find it? All you have to do is ask for it. <laughs> He's asking for it right now. You won't give it to him. I, I, you're so misinformed. It's extraordinary. Why am, I, why am I misinformed? This is a huge issue. Wouldn't you agree with me that that you have a you see things before members of Congress would see them, so that there's a an air of appearance that that maybe some shenanigans are going on? You know, I don't think that's. I assume that that's Senator, not the case. What I assume are you talking it's not about? The case again, right off the bat, Fauci says you're so misinformed. Now, prove it. But he can't. My, my financial disclosures are public knowledge and have been so. You are getting amazingly wrong information. So uh, uh, I, I cannot find them. Our office cannot find them. Where would they be if they're public knowledge? Okay, ask him for the second time. They're public knowledge, so where can we find them? And Fauci will not answer the question. Senator. Where? It is totally accessible to you if you want it. For the public. Is it accessible to the, to the public? public? To the public. Great. We look Senator, forward to you are totally incorrect. But he won't say where. My office can't find it. You're incorrect. It's totally uh, accessible to the public. Where? He won't tell him. We look Marshall, forward to reviewing the, it. Senator Marshall, Dr. Fauci has answered you. It is public information, and he's happy to give it to you if you would ask. So she lies, too. 
Senator Patty Murray, Democrat senator from Washington State, chairwoman of the committee. Senator Moran. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Hot mic moment here from Fauci. Doesn't realize the mic's open. Give it to you if you would ask. Senator Moran. What a moron. Oh, what a moron, huh? For asking you for a financial disclosure statement that you say is publicly available, but isn't. And he's the moron? Really? Really? Now, I want to go back to what um, Senator Marshall was talking about, about what DARPA did. Not DARPER, but DARPA. Oh, my goodness. One of my commenters on the uh, Podbean app here is saying my sister has had it for a week. I guess that means COVID. All her vaccinated friends have it, too. Doctor won't even see her. Sounds like she needs to get a, a new do- doctor. My goodness, I'm sorry to hear that. Um, let, let's take a look at from earlier this week, Project Veritas, military documents about gain-of-function Contradict. Fauci testimony under oath. Military documents state that EcoHealth Alliance approached DARPA, not DARPER, DARPA, in March 2018 seeking funding to conduct gain-of-function research of bat-borne coronaviruses. The proposal named Project Diffuse was rejected by DARPA, over safety concerns and the notion that it violates gain-of-function research moratorium. Wow. Now, DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, is an agency under the U.S. Department of Defense in charge of facilitating research and technology with potential military applications. The main report regarding the EcoHealth Alliance proposal leaked on the Internet a couple of months ago and has remained unverified until now. Project Veritas has obtained a separate report to the Inspector General of the Department of Defense written by U.S. Marine Corps Major Joseph Murphy, a former DARPA fellow. A direct quote from the rejection letter that DARPA Cento Eco Health Alliance, which is kind of like the middleman for Fauci's or Fauci's agency, says the proposal does not mention or assess potential risks of gain of function research. Project Veritas reached out to DARPA for comment regarding the hidden documents and spoke with the chief of communications, Jared Adams, who said it doesn't sound normal to me when asked about the way the documents were buried. But Fauci doubles down, triples down. Quadruples down. He's an evil guy. He belongs in prison for the rest of his life. That's my humble opinion, and you're entitled to it. Um, there's, there's, there's so much. There's so much, but I, I think that I need to play for you some things that um, Vice President Kamala Harris said today. 
it's it, it's remarkable how dense she is. It's just remarkable. But let me uh, we talk about government malfeasance here on a regular basis, and uh, one of the best and earliest examples of that a lot of people are aware of was when they rammed Obamacare down our throats in 2009. And they lied. And they said it was going to make health care more affordable. So let me ask you, did Obamacare, the so-called Affordable Care Act, make your health care more expensive? Does your health insurance premium feel like a second mortgage? Does your sky-high deductible prevent you from going to the doctor? Do your sky-high co-pays keep you from going to the doctor? Now, if you answered yes to any of those questions, I've got a website you need to go to. It's called MyFamilyHealthPlan.com. You click on, click on that website, you see big, bold letters, Affordable Plans. Save 30 to 50% on premiums. Personalized health coverage, low to no deductible, no co-pays. So you click on the button that says Schedule Call Now. And that's how you book a free consultation with my friend Art Wilborn, who will make sure there are no gaps in your coverage, and he will also make sure. Unlike a lot of those Obamacare plans, you get a health care plan, a health insurance plan with MyFamilyHealthPlan.com, and you're not forced to cover things like abortion, which would violate your deeply held religious beliefs. And the website is MyFamilyHealthPlan.com. Affordable plans save 30 to 50% on premiums, personalized health coverage, low to no deductible, no copays. So click on the button, schedule, call now. That's where you book a free consultation. And my buddy Art Wilborn will make sure there are no gaps in your coverage. Save money on your insurance at MyFamilyHealthPlan.com. You will be glad you did. Okay, so let's take a look. Let's take a look at good old Kamala Harris today. Um, she was on the Today Show. It's about 22 seconds. Are we going to, uh, to see the same Democratic ticket in 2024? I'm sorry, we are thinking about today. I mean, honestly, I I know why you're asking the question, because this is part of the punditry and the the gossip around places like Washington, D.C. Let me just tell you something. We're focused on the things in front of us. Wow. So the great Michael Knowles, podcaster and talk show host, says, how has this woman made it so far in politics being such a terrible communicator? But wait, but wait, there's more. She did this 101 with um, this guy on the, on the Today Show. Oh, I see, I see. I always know, I always know when there is a piece of video that is embarrassing to the Biden regime 
on Twitter because they set it up so it just keeps buffering. It just keeps buffering and they won't let it stop buffering so you can play it, right? Yep. Now I'll reboot it, and so I'll have to go get it. I'll have to go get it on uh, on Twitter. I mean, on on YouTube. But that's okay. That's okay. I mean, there's more than one way to skin a cat. Let's see. Let's see. Let's see. Okay, we'll we'll wait through the 15 second commercial. You know how it is on YouTube. On the regular 15-second commercial, start things off. We'll wait through that and see what did Kamala say today. Here This week we saw a record number of hospitalizations, adults and children. Uh, we've seen the infection record broken. I think a lot of people are, are scratching their heads and they're wondering, one year into this administration, why, why aren't we doing better in the fight against COVID? Okay, this is a guy named Craig Melvin with the Today Show. He's probably going to be getting into big trouble for having the gall to ask a tough question to uh, Vice President Kamala Harris. So let me start with saying that people are rightly frustrated with where we are. We're frustrated. We're all frustrated. But I think it's a mistake, and it would be a mistake to suggest that we've not seen great progress. If you think back to March of 2020, we were all wiping down the boxes that we got if we ordered things online. Uh, There was no vaccine. Now we have a vaccine, which has proved to be effective, and boosters. Wait. If the vaccine had proven to be effective, you wouldn't need the boosters, would ya? Now we have our children back in school. 95% of schools are back open. But we're, we're, we're building back up. We're opening back up. And we are not where we were a year ago. Let's talk about masks for a second. It's been several weeks now since public health experts have acknowledged that cloth masks, surgical masks, they're not as effective in, in terms of stopping this new variant, Omicron. They're not effective at all. Should, should Americans be wearing KN95 masks or N95 masks? Well, the CDC is going to be providing us with those guidelines. But well, what, what's taking so long? Well, the CDC is making their decisions. I don't make the CDC's decisions. But what I will say is what, what has been clear about masks is you want to wear a tight-fitting mask. That is clear. And we want to urge everybody to do that. In terms of the N95 masks, they are available. There is a stockpile of, of I believe, over 700 million of those masks. So the supply is there as necessary and as needed. At what point does the administration say, you know what, this strategy isn't working? We're going to change strategies. Six former administration officials last week wrote that open letter urging the administration to change course, to change strategy. Is it time? It is time for us to do what we have been doing, and that time is every day. How do you like that? Put that on a plaque. It is time for us to do what we have been doing, and that time is every day. Uh, <laughs> uh, that sounds kind of stupid to me, but hey, I'm just, I'm just a guy, you know. Every day it is time for us to agree that there are things and tools that are available to us 
to slow this thing down. And so right now we know we still have a number of people that, that is in the millions of Americans who have not been vaccinated and could be vaccinated, and we are urging them to get vaccinated because it will save their life. At, at what point does but, the administration acknowledge these people aren't going to get the shot? They're just not going to do it. I don't believe in giving up on people, Craig. I really don't. The 500 million tests. Wait, at what point do you admit that a lot of people get deathly ill, go to the hospital and die, who are fully vaccinated and boosted? Not going to do that either, are you? That have been ordered, that are going to be sent to every, every American. Do we know when those are going out? Shortly. Though they're going to go out shortly. Week, they've been ordered. Or? They've been ordered. We, I have to look at the current information. I think it's going to be by next week. But soon. Wait, you got to look at the current information. Why didn't you do that before this interview when you knew that this was going to be asked? Oh, that's right. Your former staffers say you refuse to look, in, look at the um, the preparatory material. That's right. Okay. This week, but soon, absolutely soon, and it is a matter of urgency for us. Should we have done that sooner? We are doing it. But should we have done it sooner? We are doing it. It's from- no, the question is, should we have done it sooner? In other words, Biden turned down the opportunity for the tests several months ago. We're doing it. No, should we have done it sooner? The voting rights here for a moment. Um, you were there in Atlanta with the president um, when he uh, compared those who oppose uh, Democratic-backed voting bills that are currently in the Senate he compared the folks who oppose those to folks who oppose civil rights. Senator Romney, in response yesterday, he took to the floor of the Senate and he said, quote, so much for unifying the country. When, when the president was on the campaign trail in the fall of 2020, he said something. He said, with Trump out of the way, the vindictiveness of a president going after Republicans who don't do exactly what he says gets taken away. Isn't that exactly what, what President Biden did in Atlanta on Wednesday? Uh, yes, it is. But she's going to have a hard time with us. President Biden took the, I believe, right and courageous step to say that Senate rules should not get in the way of protecting the American people's access to the ballot. In other words, if you think I'm actually going to answer that question, you're out of your mind. And he compared this time to a previous time in our history, which is apt for comparison. No, it's not. They use voter ID in uh, South Africa. You're going to see Nelson Mandela's a racist? Come on. It's not just Republican opposition. It it would seem as if this piece of legislation is going to come down to one or two uh, moderate Democrats. In months and weeks, the administration hasn't been able to convince one or two senators to come around. How are you going to do that in two or three days? If I may, I'd like to contextualize this conversation, which is in 2006, in this very town of Washington, D.C., up the street at the United States Capitol in the United States Senate, 98 of the 100 members of the United States Senate voted in favor of an extension of the Voting Rights Act. It was not a partisan issue. It was an American issue. Madam Vice President, how are you going to get it done? Well, she's like, well, let's start with not answering your question. (laughs) 
Well, when we have the discussion about who's responsible, I will not absolve the 50 Republicans in the United States Senate from responsibility for upholding one of the most basic and important tenets of our democracy, which is free and fair elections and access to the ballot for all eligible voters. What about Senator Manchin? What about Senator Sinema? I don't think anyone should be absolved from the responsibility of preserving and protecting our democracy, especially... When they took an oath to protect and defend our Constitution. Why? All right. Now, remember, if you work for Biden, you get paid to lie. You know what I'm saying? Because with communism, it's never about the truth or the lie. It's about what works for us. And they want to federalize the electoral system so states can no longer ever Make sure they have free and fair elections. This bill is about taking away states' abilities to make sure that only legal citizens are voting. That's what it's about. It's about turning this country into Zimbabwe or Venezuela. That's what this is about. I don't know if uh, Craig Melvin at Today Show realizes it, I don't think Kamala Harris is probably bright enough to realize what happens if this thing passes. That's what it's about. Has the administration not been able to get Senate Democrats on board? We are not giving up. No, but the question- That's not the question. Why haven't you been able to get Senate Democrats on board? She has no answer. Why, why has it taken but this But you're long? acting as though it's over. Well, I mean, you've... you've it's been- not over. So it's going to happen by Monday. I'm saying it's not over. And we don't give up. We don't give up and we will not give up. Are we going to uh, to see the same Democratic ticket in 2024? Ah! <laughs> I'm sorry. We are thinking about today. I mean, honestly, the, I, I, I know why you're asking the question, because this is part of the punditry and the, right. the gossip around places like Washington, D.C. Let me just tell you something. We're focused on the things in front of us. We're focused on what we need to do to, to address issues like affordable child care, what we need to do to ensure... So there have been that, no conversations that, about 2024? The American people sent us here to do a job. He is grinning at her like, girl, you know you're not going to be in the ticket in 2024. You know they're going to put Hillary up there. That He is grinning at her, knowing that her refusal to answer the question speaks volumes. And right now, there's a lot of work to be done, and that's my focus. It sounds sincerely. Like you're at least familiar with some of the punditry. I don't know if you've heard that there've been some. There's been some talk about a, a, a Biden Cheney ticket, perhaps in 2024. Did you read that article? I did not. I'm, I no, I did not, and I really could care less about the high class gossip on these issues. Hmm. She had a lot to say. The other thing that I thought was interesting, a lot of interesting things, but I don't care what that woman thinks is interesting. You heard it. You heard it. Unfreaking believable. But, but, to uh, Craig Melvin's um, credit, it's what the great Maharishi used to call a random act of journalism. He's actually doing some journalism there. So, you know, you, you got to give him that. 
You got to give them that as we give you this. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. It's the Doc Washburn Show Tweet of the Day. Brought to you by Red River Your Way. RedRiverYourWay.com. Big old car dealership in the middle of the USA. It believes in freedom, including your freedom. To buy the car, truck, van, or SUV of your choice the way you want to online. And have it delivered to your front door anywhere in the continental U.S. All right. So sometimes to get to the tweet of the day, we have to give you the tweet that the tweet is responding to. So. Start off with Jackie Heinrich, White House correspondent on Fox News, quoting Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, who said, and I quote, I've known, liked, and personally respected Joe Biden for many years. I did not recognize the man at the podium yesterday. Okay. So the tweet of the day is from Sean Davis co-founder of The Federalist, who says, Joe Biden is the same craven liar today as he's been for the last 50 years. Did McConnell like and respect the Joe Biden who claimed Mitt Romney wanted to reinstate slavery? McConnell is either lying to himself or to everyone else, and he needs to knock it off. Thank you, Sean Davis. That's the truth. That is the truth. And that is your Tweet of the Day brought to you by RedRiverYourWay.com. Your ability to buy the car, truck, van, or SUV of your choice the way you want to online. Have it delivered to your front door. Good stuff. So we played for you some gaffes of Vice President Kamala Harris. How about some gaffes? I, I, I'll never call this guy president. How about some gaffes from the usurper, usurper Biden? Here's the clip. Um, let me see. Bring it over here so it won't reset on me. Here's Biden. Oh, sorry. Sorry, sorry. I got to turn it back up. I always forget that. All right. Now, here's Biden. I'll stop here so we can get to the briefing started. Thank you for taking the time. Mr. President, we have a message for vaccinated Americans who are wondering why they should continue to restrict their activities given that your health officials say most Americans will get COVID at some point. Folks, we'll talk about that later. Come on. Why should Americans trust your administration to be COVID with the virus? Mr. President, I'm voting if you can see the look on this guy's face, he is totally confused. He has no idea what's going on. He is lowering his head now. I'll stop here. He looks totally, totally out of it. Totally out of it. All right, here's more Biden. Oh, sorry. It reset. Let me drag it over here. I keep forgetting. 
Just call me Michael McDonald. You can find the nearest testing sites for you by Googling COVID test near me. Google COVID test near me. And to help uh, lead our federal testing program, I've talked, I've, 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 I've excuse me, I've tapped uh, Dr. Tom, Eng- I hope I pronounced it, Eng- 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 Inglesby, correct? Is that right? He's out of it. But they have no intention of kicking him to the curb until at least after 12 noon, January 20th, 2023. Because uh, uh, Kamala would like to run twice. And if Joe doesn't get halfway through his term, then she only gets to run once. Okay, wait. So Joe doesn't even know how to pronounce the name of the guy leading his testing program. Apparently that's what we were just hearing. Here's another clip of it. And to help uh, lead our federal testing program, I've talked, I've, 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 ta- I've excuse me, I've tapped uh, Dr. Tom, Eng- I hope I pronounced it, Eng- 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 Inglesby. Correct? Is that right, Jeff? Is that right, Jeff? Doesn't even know how to pronounce the name of the guy leading his testing program. Wow. No, I got more. I got more. I don't mind dancing on this guy. He's asked for it. He deserves it. Couldn't happen to a nicer guy, a more deserving guy. Unfortunately, while our military is stepping up, as they always do, there are others sitting on the sidelines, and we're standing in the way. If you haven't gotten vaccinated, do it. No. No. Get out of my face. No. Take a long walk off a short pier, you poser, you faker, you fraud, you con artist. No. Personal choice impacts us all, our hospitals, our countries. I make a special appeal to social media companies and media outlets. Please deal with the misinformation and disinformation that's on your shows. Uh, if they do that, they'd have to turn you off. On your shows? Social media has shows? This guy doesn't even know what social media is. It has to stop. COVID-19 is one of the most formidable enemies America has ever faced. We've got to work together. So, to quote the great Jeff Carlson over the EpicTimes.com, U.S. President calls for the freedom of the press to be controlled and freedom of speech to be abridged. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. So, Facebook joined with Twitter a few days ago in silencing Marjorie Taylor Greene. Jeff Carlson says, Large tech companies aligned with DNC and intelligence community have been working in a coordinated effort to silence conservatives. Some are banned. Many are throttled. If this is being done on behalf of elements of government, how does this not become a First Amendment violation? Well, it is. It shown up is. But who's going to be doing anything about that? That's what I want to know. That's what I want to know. All right. Best kept secret American health care. Best-kept secret American health care revolves around 
this tiny two-ounce bone, top bone of your spinal column, the atlas or the C1. See, your skull weighs anywhere from 8 to 15 pounds. It rests on the atlas bone, top bone of your spinal column, which is where your central nervous system is, uh, is located, and it's real easy for your atlas to get out of alignment. If it does, your whole spinal column can get kinked up like a chain, restricting your central nervous system's ability to send impulses to the rest of your body. So when that happens, it could affect almost anything from head to toe, your respiratory system, digestive system, your circulatory system, yes, even your reproductive system. It can cause migraines, neck pain, vertigo, problems with your blood sugar, problems with your breathing. So, do you or a loved one have any of these problems? Well, look in the mirror or have your loved one look in the mirror. Does one eye look bigger than the other? Are your eyes off balance? Are your shoulders off balance? Look at a picture of yourself. Do you lean to one side or the other? Because that's how you feel most comfortable. That's not normal. But it, it, it sure is commonplace. The answer to any of these questions is yes. You probably need to get your atlas adjusted. Now, if you're in central Arkansas, it's real easy. Do yourself a favor. Call my friends at the Arkansas Upper Cervical Center, 501-279-2009, for a free consultation to see if you need to get your atlas adjusted. If you're outside central Arkansas, go to their website, turnmypoweron.com, link to the tab that says find a doctor to see if you can find a doctor near you who can adjust your atlas. All right? All right. Okay, so that having been said, you've been listening to Episode 66 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. Today's program has been produced by Tim Terrible, directed by Mick Messy. This has been a terribly messy production. Portions of today's show will be taken overseas and dropped. If you like a transcript of today's episode of the all-new Doc Washburn Show, simply peel the roof off a Rolls-Royce panel truck and send it to Mansour's Computer Solutions, 7th floor of the Ephemeral B. Smoot Building, Whitehall, Arkansas, in care of Sheriff Mansour Sempier X. And that's the way it is. Thursday, January 13th, 2022.